You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So here we are with Derms and Conditions crossing the border up into Western Canada, British Columbia, in Whistler. And we're at the office talking to the illustrious Jeff Donovan, right? Jeff Hurdy Gurdy Man Donovan, to bring back an old hit by Donovan from many years ago. I don't know if you remember that song, Jeff, but anyway, it's great to have you here. And I learned a lot from our last discussion. So I'm coming back for more. I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> well, it's great to be back. Thanks so much. So we, we had talked about alopecia areata in a, in a previous Derms and Conditions episode, and we went over a lot of different aspects, how you talk to the patient, what's the time course you expect. We have two effective agents. There are some differences between them. But a couple of other things that I wanted to ask you about is before we get to what type of monitoring you do, blood tests, things you you tell them, and timing of when you follow them up, about patients that go online and we've read about it in textbooks, so some of these patients may have associated autoimmune disease, especially thyroid disease, autoimmune thyroid disease, uh, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, um, how often do you get thyroid testing? And if you do, what test do you get? And what does it really tell us? Is that something that will tend to happen later? Is it something that you see when most patients present even at a younger age. There's so many questions about that because people ask, and is it a needle in a haystack that we're looking for? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I certainly- Jeff, let me TS- stop you there. I always ask great questions. Haven't you Haven't you noticed that already? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You know, DSH is really important. And, and often I stop there. Um, if someone really- uh, comes in with a T4 and a T3 and thyroid antibodies, I'm okay with that. And I'm, I'm happy to help the patient uh, interpret it. But generally, if a TSH is between 0.5 and 2.5, I'm really happy. If it's 3.5, 4.5, I might just retest it again six, nine months, a year down the road. If the patient has thyroid antibodies that come in with them in their blood work and they're positive, what this tells me is that, yeah, there's absolutely a chance that this thyroid value is going to go off at some time and we need to retest it. The challenge is knowing when is it going to go off and are they truly going to ever develop a thyroid condition? But I don't often test the thyroid antibodies at the at the beginning, but um, there's nothing wrong with it. So the ones we're talking about are the antithyroglobulin antibodies and the antithyroid peroxidase antibodies, correct? And if they're positive, but the TSH, T3, and T4 are normal, how predictive are, are they that at some point someone's going to develop autoimmune thyroid disease? Do we know? They, they slightly increase the risk. And we know that um, the risk of the developing hypothyroidism is very slightly increased, but it's small. And we don't have good data in terms of when we should repeat that. Um, but generally two to five years is reasonable. When patients see that, when physicians see that, the feeling is let's repeat it every three months, but that's probably not appropriate. No, right. And and you could tell them, look, we'll keep an eye on your TSH and we'll also how you feel. We're not just going 
we're not just lab, you know, testers. We we evaluate patients clinically, but that that's very very helpful. Okay, Jeff, what baseline laboratory testing bl- blood testing do you draw, and what's your cadence of periodically retesting CBCs, chem profiles, um, lipid levels, etc. I I feel that the tests before starting are really important because that's the only opportunity you have prior to starting to get these baselines. So CBC, TSH, ferritin, uh, 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels, the liver enzymes, the creatinine, a urinalysis. We want cholesterol profiles. Uh, I'll often order a zinc and a B12 just to have those as baseline. So these these are beyond what we see written with the JAK inhibitors, though. This is this is Jeff Donovan's full fledged hair evaluation, correct? That's right. In in the setting of about to start a JAK inhibitor, that that's the typical things that I would do, as well as a CK, um, creatinine kinase, um, and then after starting. Um, and I think I said Hep B and Hep C. I I often order those. And, as well. and uh, uh, you know a quantifieron, a TB skin test, whatever. Okay, that's right. And then after starting, it's monthly for three months, and then you get all those tests monthly for three months. No, I generally do CBC, my AST, ALT, and uh, CK, creatinine, and cholesterol. Those are the main tests that I I want to know. Um, for the first three months. We know that CKs can go up. These uh, creatinine kinases, they're usually not very significant. Um, there can be changes in in the CBC, the complete blood count. Uh, often they're of n- no significant consequence. But there can be these blips, and I think it's just uh, so helpful in many of these patients to repeat things when, when lab tests come back abnormal. Um, but then after those first three months is over, most of the guidelines like baricitinib, for example, recommend every three months. Um, but once things are stable, most patients continue to be quite stable. Um, and so once we get over those first three months, there's usually pretty smooth smooth sailing. And may, you may periodically check some of these things, right? So, you know, some of the things you mentioned, I'm going to plead my ignorance, right? What, what do I do with a ferritin level? What do I do with a, with a vitamin D level? You know, I, I yeah. not, you know, I'm not sure where to go with some of those results. I'm the first to admit it. So can you shed some light on that? The answer is we don't fully know either. We do know <laughs> that. We do know that there's I, a, I thought I was talking <laughs> to somebody smart, Jeff, what's going on here. <laughs> you know, when we look at vitamin D, we know that low vitamin D correlates quite well with alopecia areata severity and prognosis. What's so tempting is to say that, oh, your vitamin D is so low. Let's bring it up. That should help your hair grow. We don't know that. What we do know is that low vitamin D is often found in more severe alopecia. That's all we know so far. But certainly we do want to bring it up into normal levels. Right. Makes sense. When when it comes to ferritin, um, it's kind of in the same area. A 22-year-old female with a ferritin of eight, wow, if we can get that ferritin up 40 or more, we're probably going to help the process of growing hair. 
The challenge with alopecia areata, and we always have to remember, is sometimes these ferritins are not so accurate, especially in acute inflammatory alopecia, where the ferritin is actually acting as an inflammatory marker. And so sometimes we see elevated ferritins, and I might order a serum iron and a TIBC to get a better sense of what's the true iron status here in this patient. So if their ferritin is low, you, you give them iron? I do, yeah. And, and how would you dose it? just generally? So the thing about iron is I really want the patient to feel well on their iron. And patients will often say, what iron, what iron, how often? What's so important to me is the patient does not have constipation, does not have diarrhea, feels good, feels they can incorporate this. And so um, I may do something as simple as ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate every other day, and then we'll repeat the iron in three months and we'll see what's happening. If the iron is budging really nicely upwards, then we've got the answer. If not, then we might start adding vitamin C or we might start going to daily. We might change the type of iron. But what's so important to me initially is that we just have you know good adherence to the plan. Patients feel this, this is good with me. And uh, every other day is a great way for, for starting. I would imagine a lot of the patients, uh, when they see that you're ordering things over and above the standard list that's, that's done, that's in the package inserts for JAK inhibitors, for example, that they're saying, wow, this is a little, being a little bit more thorough than maybe some of the testing I've gotten in the past. I would imagine people, especially in this situation, appreciate that. Are there any final comments on alopecia areata? Because I have some question about some other hair loss conditions. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Well, just as for your last comment, patients love blood tests. And I don't order blood tests because patients like them, but your comment is so good. And patients really want to feel that they've been taken care of. And if there's something that we can do as physicians that transfers that to patients that, you know what, we're doing everything we can to figure this out. Patients appreciate it. They want to know that, you know, they're getting good care. You know, it's interesting. It's not the same disease, but I had a, a young woman with acne. She was uh, in, in her mid-20s and she was still having, you know, problems with acne. She was thin. She was certainly not the textbook habitus of polycystic ovary syndrome, polycystic ovary disease. And she'd been battling, been going back and forth with different things. And and I, I just said to her, I said, Yon, oral contraceptives or spironolactone? No, I'm not. Um, so I said, you know what? I just, since you've never had it, I'd like to order some tests. So I got a DHEAS, a free testosterone, total testosterone. And I said, during your period, when you know it's during your period, I want to get these blood tests. And her, she was having regular menstrual periods, she said, uh, pretty much every month, though it wasn't exactly as it we found out later. And she got those tests and she ended up having PCOS, right? And it, it would be one that I wouldn't have necessarily, if I was seeing her when she was 19, I probably wouldn't have ordered those tests or, you know, but it's, uh, she appreciated, she said, wow, nobody ever did that. Well, coming in later in the game, sometimes it's easier to be the hero. Um, yep. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? But people do appreciate it, especially when they've been around the situation for a while and somebody's trying to look for something different. 
right? Because patients are patients don't all fall into the bell curve, right? They're they could be all across the board. So any points, yep. Anything else about alopecia areata? Because I have another couple of other diseases to bug you about. Right. I think I think we've covered it quite well. I think the thing that we want to remember finally is uh, we're not at the finish line and these drugs don't help everyone. And so we want to give realistic expectations that I hope this helps you. But, um, you know, if not, then I'm on your side and we're going to keep going and we're going to figure out what we can do. But not to create such extreme hope that the expectation is that it will regrow because we we still aren't at the finish line. And, you know, my experience, at least thus far, um, based on clinical trials and with the patients that that I've seen, is that when they start seeing regrowth, and many of them do within that first six months, that's encouraging enough to many of them uh, to keep going, especially when they're not having any side effects, right? Absolutely. What about the subset of patients that are atopic? And I've seen this a lot in more so in younger children, and actually the cases I've read about, a few we've seen in practice, where we give them dupilumab, and they have alopecia areata, they're atopic, we give them dupilumab injections, and their hair regrows, right? Is there a way to figure out which patients are going to respond? You know, this is such a good point, and we don't know for sure yet. Um, the thought is that maybe in a patient like this, that perhaps serum IgE levels could be helpful as we think about this process, but we don't know for sure yet. And the safety of dupilumab is such that for many of these individuals with atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata, it's worth a trial, especially if they meet coverage for the atopic dermatitis. Right. And and sometimes there is some pretty spectacular regrowth. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few cases. Now, there are also cases of hair loss reported with dupilumab. Um, so it's like, you know, what's going on here? It grows yeah. hair sometimes, but, but why, you know, I think there's a lot more of what's going on with the balances of, you know, TH1, TH2 or whatever, right? You know, patients don't read the textbook on the cytokine patterns and cellular patterns. So there are probably different endotypes. Absolutely. Or- and, you know, someday with, with the so-called personalized medicine, we'll be able to have the cytokine profile and we'll be able to pinpoint therapies really well. Yeah. I'm, I can't wait to see my my profiles. I think they're going to be be out of whack by the time they we have personalized <laughs> medicine. But, so I'd like to ask you about another disease state because I did have a, a challenging case. It happened to be a guy who was a great guy, happened to be a judge. It was an attorney that became a judge, young, younger guy, that we thought had alopecia areata. But I have to admit, the pattern was, eh, you know, th- does he have ophiasis pattern? I, I didn't really you know, look like he might. Um, and he had been using quite a bit of topical steroid before without much help. So he had some erythema in his scalp that I thought may have been from topical corticosteroid telangiectasias and things of that nature. But after a while, I said, something's not right. He had these, this perifollicular accentuation of the erythema. And he wasn't responding that well to the intralesional corticosteroid injection. And I did a biopsy and I sent it to a dermatopathologist that really likes reading hair. As you mentioned, someone, well, when we talked before, 
Send it to somebody that likes reading hair and knows hair pathology very well. And he wrote to me, he called me, Jim, this is like in Plano Pilaris, hands down, right? No doubt. And it was a cha- it was challenging to treat it. I gave him cyclosporin. He was reading about it. He said, I want to try finasteride. He wanted me to throw the kitchen sink at it and everything else in the kitchen, you know, and he, it still was a struggle. I called Brett King about data on Janus kinase inhibitors. And now that I know you, I can call you and some other people that are really good in hair. You know, I, I, I like hair. I think I understand it, but I'm certainly not like you and some of the others. Um, and he said, the Janus kinase inhibitors, there's some data, but it's not perfect either. Right. He said, it's not like, oh, you started and you found this miracle in every case. So what's your approach to lichen plano polaris? Diagnostically, what helps? And then therapeutically. It was a challenge. It was a real challenging case. Yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves credit that these mimickers exist and there are tough cases that look just like one versus the other. And that's just going to happen to us in dermatology. Um, I think the trichoscopy really helps a lot. And um, the use of a dermatoscope, um, the learning curve is not too great um, to, to, to get up close and look at some of these hairs, but perifollicular erythema, perifollicular scale, twisted hairs, or the so-called acquired pilitorti, and a feeling that the, the ostea have gone, they've just disappeared. The, these are helpful things. But certainly a low threshold to biopsy. I think that in, in many cases, we just don't biopsy enough. And biopsies can be really helpful. When the sebaceous glands are gone, there's no arguing that this is a scarring alopecia. Right. And as far as treatment, you know, I, I will base that according to patient preference to some degree on safety. Um, but... Uh, starting with uh, steroid injections, starting with topical steroids, uh, topical um, calcineurin inhibitors is often first line, but quickly moving to things like hydroxychloroquine, uh, doxycycline, mycophenolate, methotrexate. So these are sort of... How, how first- about some of these in combination, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, he wa- I said, you know, I, I can't give you six oral dry. He wanted me to give him everything. And, you know, I said, there's a couple of things I feel comfortable combining. He had difficulty with hydroxychloroquine in terms of GI upset, but when he could tolerate it, it seemed to help. And mycophenolate, I don't know. It was, everything seemed to be plus minus. Cyclosporin seemed to help the best when we got to that, but I didn't put him on mycophenolate with cyclosporin, you know, right? And cyclosporin is a wonderful agent. And the point is a great one in that if we can start one agent and find that it worked wonderfully and the disease stopped, well, this is great. The challenge with scarring alopecia is often we're not so lucky. And so we need to start two or three agents. Um, we can combine hydroxychloroquine with doxycycline. We can combine hydroxychloroquine with these topical agents. Um, we're thinking about using more and more low-dose naltrexone right now as fairly safe add-on agents. How about um, how about hydroxychloroquine with mycophenolate, mofetil, or cyclosporin? You feel comfortable with that? 
those are a little trickier, not impossible. They, they um, sometimes can uh, change blood counts a little more readily. They certainly increase the chances of uh, things like zoster, for example, but only slightly. Um, they can be, and they're certainly done in rheumatoid arthritis literature, you know, a lot more than we often do in dermatology. Yeah, I feel like some of these people in other specialties, they, 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 if they listened in on what we debate, they'd be sitting back and laughing and going, what are these people kidding? We do this all the time. But, Absolutely. You know. And I think that, you know, it's, it's wonderful to have chats with rheumatologists because you really realize exactly that, that the agents that they use and the comfort level they have is, is quite great. And as far as the JAK inhibitors go, there's data emerging that they do something. It may be that they do something more for frontal fibrosing alopecia than lichen planopilaris, but we don't know that for sure yet. But they're definitely on the list. And um, they're sitting there. Uh, and the key question is, where do we put them? Do we put them above cyclosporin? Do we put them below cyclosporin? How do we triage all this? We probably don't see enough of these. And you probably, because you do only hair, see more of them. Uh, we don't have the 1,200 cases of lichen planopilaris like we do of alopecia areata or somebody going after a phase three study or or drug development to get to phase three to get approval. So we're finding from case reports and discussing our experiences. But what's an adequate trial of, let's say, you're starting hydroxychloroquine in a patient with lichen planopolaris, or you're starting mycophenolate malfetil? How long before you can tell if the drug is doing something or not? So if a patient is quite symptomatic with itching and burning and pain and it just and shedding, then three months is often adequate. If a patient comes in with not much itching, not much burning, not much shedding, it just we just happen to find this, um, then sometimes you have to go a little bit longer to really appreciate that the perifollicular erythema and scale are diminishing. Um, but many patients are very symptomatic and we expect them to feel better in three months. And if not, we either need to stop or add on other treatments more readily. You know, it's interesting you talked about the symptomatology with lichen planopilaris. That was one of the things that tipped me off to something's not right in this case. And in the beginning, it wasn't as pronounced, but he told me, you know, sometimes it hurts. But as time went on, and it certainly looked like the erythema was increasing, especially before we started using some of these uh, agents like cyclosporin and hydroxychloroquine, when we were just injecting and using topicals, it became somewhat symptomatic. He said his scalp hurt, you know, it, it wasn't, it was more burning than itching and it was a painful scalp. So that's an interesting thing. To, yeah, those say. are helpful tip-offs that patients share with us. That tenderness is key to an inflammatory process. So, Jeff, you probably thought I was going to let you go, but not so quick, all right? Not so quick, my friend. I know you're doing a lot of educational programs, you know, online that people can do. I saw something about a fellowship project and other regular initiatives teaching about hair diagnosis and treatment. Do you just want to highlight a few of those and, and how people can get access to them? Well, thanks so much. We we have the weekly evidence-based hair podcast where we highlight some of the latest research hot off the press in, in the world of hair loss. And uh, that's a lot of fun. It just shows us how quickly hair loss research is moving along. 
And starting January 2024, we'll be starting the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship. And that's a virtual program where uh, practitioners can come on board and spend um, Wednesdays or Thursdays afternoons with me. And we can learn a whole lot about hair and solve problems and look at cases and really advance our knowledge. And so we're, we're really excited to launch that. So, so will I get a cool certificate at the end? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, great. That, that'd be great. So how do people access this? They just look up your name online and they'll find it, your website? That's right. And they can always uh, you know, email any of the, the office links that we have, but uh, there's information online and information on our YouTube channel as well. So jeffdonovan.com? Donovanmedical.com. So the one final words of wisdom from Jeff Donovan on hair loss for Jim Del Rosso. Do you have? You know, I think that if something doesn't seem right, then consider a biopsy. Consider asking someone. There's there's other clues out there that can be, you know, often found. And I think we have to just respect the fact that there's a lot of mimickers out there. And so there's androgenetic hair loss that looks like lichen plano pilaris and vice versa. There's alopecia areata that looks like scarring alopecia and, and malignancies. And uh, if something doesn't seem right, Go ahead and consider a biopsy yeah. or asking someone else. Yeah, get get some. I have a three strike rule. If I see a patient, and especially when I'm pretty sure I should be getting a response with what I'm doing, and it's the third visit with them and they're not getting anywhere, I, I just might be missing something that's even obvious in that particular patient. And and I ask for help even after how many years I got out of my residency in '86, and I, I still feel that way. Sometimes I feel like. I need to do that more because there's there's so much we're learning so much jeff and you've been a big part of teaching people about hair so thank you very much for that oh thank you thank you for listening to this episode of derms and conditions if you have any questions please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com that's p-o-d-c-a-s-t at d-e-r-m S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot com. Podcast at dermsquared.com.